Good morning. Good morning. And all of you in this room know, but our online listeners may not know, this week was uh, Thanksgiving here in the United States, a uh, holiday that traces back to 1621 when the Pilgrims celebrated the first Thanksgiving at Plymouth, Massachusetts. And the United States was the first nation in the world to actually uh, pass a federal holiday for the purpose of giving thanks. And the purpose of the holiday is to give thanks to God for the blessings he's given us. So I want to just take a moment this morning and give thanks. Thanks to God for Jesus Christ who brought us the truth and overcame where we could not overcome. For the Holy Spirit who takes all that Christ has done and makes it real in our own lives. For the Father and his methods of truth, love, and freedom. And for God's angels who minister to us and watch over us. For the freedom and opportunities we have in this country. And if you watch the news, that is something to truly be thankful for. And I also want to give thanks to God for you. If you read uh, in, in the New Testament, Paul was constantly giving thanks to the people. And I want to thank God for you and thank you for um, your love for the message, for the generosity in supporting the spread of this message, for your attendance, for helping out and volunteering with all the setup and takedown and broadcast and uh, sharing materials and love and support. And I want to thank uh, Dr. Jim Markham and his ministry and all they're doing to open avenues to spread the message and ultimately also thank God for the many avenues that are opening up in the last year, year and a half to include broadcast, um, print, publication, um, speaking opportunities and other organizations we're making building relationships with. The message is really opening and spreading. And so just want to give thanks and just pause a moment and see if anyone would like to give thanks. Anybody? Yeah, I see some hands. Go ahead. Those involved in education? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, For our teachers, sure. And family. And family, of course. Yes, other, other hands? Yes. I'm thankful for the freedom we have to worship like this. Absolutely. We haven't met for long, so I'm grateful for that. Martin? His children are here today. Excellent, yes. So I'll hand over here. I'm really grateful that we're alive now because, you know, this is the last generation. I mean, none of us will be old, you know, get old enough to die before the Lord comes. At least we're hoping that. And so I'm very grateful for that. Yes, thank you. I'm thankful I can visit your class from Portland, Oregon. My wife and I came out to visit our son and his wife. And we're thankful you're here. Thank you. Other visitors here from out of town? Where are you from? We're from Greenville, South Carolina. Oh, welcome. Glad you're here. Yeah. And you? Pigby Valley, Kentucky. Kentucky, South Carolina, Oregon. Anybody else? All right. Well, we're glad you're all here today. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do give thanks to you for the many and abundant blessings, for your character, for your methods, for your principles, for the freedoms, for, your, for the love that you provide us, for the, for the family and friends that we have, for the opportunity to get together and study and share. Uh, we ask that your presence will be with us this morning as we study about your kingdom and your principles, that our minds will come into a knowledge of you and our hearts will be bonded in love with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in our quarterly, Growing in Christ, and the title this week is The Law and the gospel, the law and the gospel. When you heard the title, anything pop into your mind? What law? Okay, what law? Uh, the memory text 
uh, maybe gives us a clue. And the memory text is in 1 John 2, 3 and 4, and it says, Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. What does this passage mean to you? That if God's love is exhibited by your actions and attitude as well as just by your words, then you don't represent him no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I, I think you're, you're, you, you've kind of succinctly, but the, the question over here, though, comes back to oh, what law, right? Yeah. And I think, actually, the very next verse yes. helps to complete the thought. Go ahead. Because it says, but if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. Amen. Okay. Let's see if we can bring some of this together. Do you, did you notice that they used the, the King James, the New King James Version was chosen? Do you think there's a reason for that versus other versions for this particular passage? Here, let me just share a couple other versions with you and see if you notice any, anything that would suggest anything different to you. This is out of the NIV. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. Good news translation. If we obey God's commands, then we are sure, to, then we are sure that we know him. Those who say that they know him, but do not obey his commands are liars, and there's no truth in them. Do you, is there a difference between saying commands and commandments to you? If you? Do you hear those differently? And I'm wondering if the lesson authors are, are trying to suggest that the gospel is not tied to Christ's commands or instructions or methods or directions, but to the list of ten. And is Christ's commands broader than just the ten? Yes. Yes. Here's my paraphrase from that same section. We can be confident that we have come into unity with him when we practice his methods, live his principles, and obey his teachings. The man who says, I am a Christian, but does not love others and does not put Christ's commands into practice misrepresents God and his entire life is a lie. There is no truth in such a person. First paragraph in the in the in the lesson says, "The law and character of God are central to the great controversy, and when the controversy is final, finally over, God's law and character will be vindicated before the onlooking universe. Until then, the controversy rages on as human beings we wind up on one side or the other, and the side we choose decides the master we follow. In the words of Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan, quoted in Sabbath school. I really understood him. Yeah. What do you think about the, the thoughts in the first paragraph? What, what is the relationship you understand between God's law and God's character? Yes. God's law is his character. You know, and, and this statement implies that it's not the same thing. Okay, did you hear what she said? She said God's law is an expression of his character, but this statement implies that they're separate in some way. That you have his character and you have his law and they're, and they're not the same thing. That's, that's the way it was, it was it, she heard it. Did, did, did others feel that there was, there was, they were making a distinction between the two? <clears throat> For those who don't know, here's a position statement from our class. This is one of, the, one of the come and reason position statements. It says, God is love, and God's law is the law of love, which is the law of life. The law of love cannot be arbitrary, 
created, enacted, or legislated. God's law of love originates in the heart and character of God and thus has no beginning point and no ending point. It is immutable and can never be changed. God's law of love is the design template for life. All life is constructed to exist only in perfect harmony with this law. Deviations will bring the natural result of pain, suffering, and death unless they're remedied by God himself. And thoughts about that? Think about it for a moment. Did, did, did you have questions about what that meant? This is a pretty strong statement. This is a pretty strong statement. It doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room in this statement. It is, but it brings that it down to that completeness of the central core element through which understanding of that and that alone brings balance and understanding of the rest. Oh, did y'all hear what she said? And, and, and this is exactly what we're honing in, in on. That she says, understanding of what we just said actually brings balance to everything else in, in Scripture. I think you're right. And, and I was going to su- suggest that when you make a strong statement like this, that we should be able to back that statement up. That we shouldn't just make the statement, we should be able to have evidence to support the statement, don't you think? But the great part is, we don't have to back it up because God backs it up in his action and his, his leading. So yes, we bring our, our evidence to the table of what we experienced, but it's so factual because that's how God exhibits when you open the door to that. Well, I think that's exactly right. So my point is that, no, we're not producing the evidence, but we need to be able to show that the evidence is there. Okay, so yeah, it's not up to us to make this real. It already is real, but it's up to us if we make this statement to show others how we came to this statement. And so I I suggest there are three threads that we can look through, which are we should be able to show this from inspired sources like scripture and from science and from experience. And for those who who would like a concise place to find a, a reference for this position, in the notes this week, I have a long list of supporting elements to support this position. And from scripture, can, can you think of any scripture that would support this idea that God's law is a law of love? And it's connected somehow to life. Any scriptures you can think of? Romans 13.10, love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5.14, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You should think through the implications that the entire law is summed up in a single command. The entire law. Think that through. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you read the, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. James 2.8. Or Jesus in Matthew 12, 37 through 40, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as, as yourself. All law and the prophets hang on these two. Everything stems from the law of love. But how about life? Proverbs twelve twenty eight. In the way of righteousness there is life. Along that path is immortality. Do you hear that? The way of righteousness we find life and immortality. Yeah. Uh, Proverbs twenty one twenty one. He who pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. Why do we find lo- life if we pursue love? See, if you can connect those dots, is it, well, if you pursue love, God from his throne in heaven will grant you, like a, wave his wand, his scepter, boom, you've got life. And if you don't pursue love, God waves, waves his gavel, boom, and you are now judged and ex- executed. Is, is that what this is saying? 
Psalms 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Wait, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul? Again, Psalms 19.7, yes. The, the, the phrases and the terms in which you said using the word law, mm-hmm. the law of the Lord and the law of, could, we just, could you substitute character for law? I like that very much. Yeah, we should maybe dig a little deeper. I mean, in, in the old days, because of the limited and the history of the old Israelites, you had to mandate a law structure. But considering we may have evolved a little bit in our language and our understanding since then, can we substitute character versus law? Well, I, I don't have a problem with that the way I understand things. Yeah. But even today's language, when we talk about law, law, we have laws of health. Physics, whatever. Yeah. Laws of physics. We have lots of different types of law, so... They are the, characters of the, the characteristics of the matter in which you're talking about. What do you all think of that? Any comments on that? The name was a reflection of character. The name back in, at that t- time, sure. Mm-hmm. Jacob, liar and deceiver. Israel, one who is victorious, overcomes with God. Yeah, name has an expression or reflection of the character. Um, other Christian writers who saw this law this is out of a book called Christ Object Lessons, page 258. In living for self, he has rejected the divine love, which would have flowed out in mercy to his fellow men. Thus he has rejected life. For God is love, and love is life. Amen. You hear that? God is love, love is life. How do you connect love and life together? How does that work? Is it what I said earlier? If you love, then God's happy with you, and he, and he bestows upon you uh, this, this blessing of life, and if you don't love, he judges you and, and executes you. Is, is that what's going on? They're, they're the same. They're the same. Or have you ever seen or personally <laughs> felt when one is newly in love, do they seem more alive? Would they describe their days as feeling more alive? So that evidence of that temporary element, or hopefully long-term element, can also be one small picture of the bigger love. Here's another one, Great Controversy 493. Our only definition of sin is that given in the Word of God. It is transgression of the law. Now, if we stop right there, what would tradition, traditional Christianity say? Breaking of the Ten Commandments, breaking the rules. But let's, let's, let's let this author keep, keep going. It says, it is an outworking of a principle at war with the great law of love, which is the foundation of the divine government. So transgression of the law is actually an outworking of a principle that's at war with love. What is that principle that wars against love? Selfishness. Selfishness, yeah. The law of love being the foundation of the government of God, the happiness of all created beings depend upon their perfect accord of this great principles of righteousness. Why do the happiness of God's created beings depend upon accord with this law? Because if you break this law, as we're taught, what are we traditionally taught? If you break the law, what? First, it gets recorded. And then there's a judgment. And then there's a punishment. And your happiness depends on not being judged guilty. So fortunately, we have someone to pay our penalty so we can all be happy in our sin. Wait, did I miss something? I got confused there, didn't I? 
No, that's not what it says. The law of love is the foundation of the government of God. Happiness depends upon it. It'd be like saying the law of respiration is the foundation of healthy physical health, and and uh, and uh, your your physical health depends upon harmony with breathing. If you stop, stop breathing, you know, you're not going to be really healthy or happy. Um, I'm going to skip several of these. There's there's multiple more in the notes who'd like to get those that go into some length. Um, but here's one. I'll just uh, this is out of. Um, Signs of the Times, April 15, 1886. As the supreme rule of the universe, God has ordained laws for the government not only of living beings, but all operations of nature. Everything, whether great or small, animate or inanimate, is under fixed laws which cannot be disregarded. There are no exceptions to this rule, for nothing that the divine hand has made has been forgotten by the divine mind. But... Well, everything in nature is governed by natural law, man alone, as an intelligent being capable of understanding its requirements, is amenable to moral law. To man alone, the crowning work of his creation, God has given a conscience to realize the sacred claims of the divine law and a heart capable of loving it as holy, just, and true. And of man, prompt and perfect obedience is required. God does not compel him to obey. He is a free moral agent. Did you hear? There's so much in that, so pithy, so much deepness that, like that last little statement, God does not compel him to obey. Just that statement alone invalidates half of Christian doctrine. Half of Christian doctrine that says, if you don't obey, I'm required to punish. When somebody threatens to punish you for not doing what they want you to do, or what they tell you to do, what they command you to do, would you call that being compelled? Yes. This whole idea of threatened punishment is, is compulsion, and this one statement alone, it does not, God does not compel, invalidates the traditional view of God's law. The traditional view of God's law, he imposes the law, and he imposes the punishment for those who break the law. It's not true. God, God creates, and when he creates, he builds things to operate on certain unchangeable protocols. And when you break those protocols... Life can't continue outside the way it was built to function. And the designer sent his son to put this world back in harmony with the way he built it to run. This is out of uh, Hard Sayings of the Bible, InterVarsity Press, 1996. In some sense, God's wrath is built into the very structure of created reality. In rejecting God's structure and establishing our own, in violating God's intention for creation and substituting our own, we cause our own disintegration. You hear? This is, is, this, is this talking, describing a law here? You know, built into the reality, God constructed his universe to operate in certain ways. And when you break that, you cause your own disintegration. The human condition, which same same book, the human condition which Paul describes in Romans one eighteen through thirty two about the wrath of God being revealed, is not something God caused. The phrase "revealed from heaven," where heaven is a typical Jewish substitute for the word God, does not depict some kind of divine intervention, but rather the inevitable inevitability of human debasement, which results when God's will, built into the created order, is violated, since the created order has its origin in God. Does that make sense? This is exactly what we're teaching. And yet it gets obscured with this other idea. So that was evidence from first scripture, then various uh, Bible commentators and theologians. And now, how about evidence from science? 
does science support the idea that the principle of love, the principle of giving, brings life, while the principle of selfishness is damaging and brings death? Yes. Any any evidence from science? <laughs> The animal world, yeah. Uh, the circle of giving. The sun gives its energies to the plants, which through circles internal to themselves, the Calvin-Benson cycle, converts energy into chemical energy and produces byproducts of oxygen that we breathe. We eat the plants, and the chemical energy is utilized via internal circles within us, the citric acid cycle, and we give back to the plants carbon dioxide and byproducts of digestion, a never-ending circle of giving, which was metaphorically described in Ezekiel chapter 10, God's throne was seen sitting upon what? Rotating wheels within wheels within reels. See all these circles within circles I just went through? How many just circling there and supporting each other? How God built his universe to ever-ending giving? This is how it was constructed. Evidence from experience. When you give of yourself for the well-being of another one, what happens inside you? Not not to get something back, just because you want to help somebody. What happens inside you? Revitalized health. Revitalized health. Do you, do you experience greater peace when you actually act in love to help another person? How about when you've acted to exploit somebody? You did something to, to take advantage of another person. You stole from them. You lied about them. You manipulated them. What happens inside you when you do that? More peace? Guilt and remorse. Guilt, remorse. I, I won't go through the whole biological, physiological cascade of events that happen, but I can tell you, when you do that, you, st- you, you start a negative cascade of inflammation that damages your body and brain. Dozens of studies over several decades have examined the relationship between volunteer work, uh, altruism, beneficence, giving of yourself, and health-related outcomes. Um, studies show that... There's a plethora of positive responses for those who volunteer. I've got the references in here. Oxford University Press. Four studies between 1996 and 2003 evaluated the effects of volunteerism on longevity in the elderly. How long do you live? Controlling for co-founding variables such as health when entering this study and smoking and all these other things that you might be doing. Um, uh, The study found, all four of them, that those who volunteered lived longer than those who did not volunteer. Several studies have examined the relationship between volunteering and physical functioning. Uh, 427 women who resided in upstate New York uh, were both housewives and mothers in 1956, and they were followed for the next 30 years. They were followed. So this is not a retrospective study where we look back and, and take a, a memory history. We, we actually follow them prospectively over time to see what happens. These are very powerful studies. And they compared the non-volunteers, women who uh, did any volunteer... Uh, they compared the non-volunteers to the volunteers. And women who did any volunteering had better physical functioning in 1986, had more autonomy, more independence, uh, after adjusting for baseline health status, level of education, and a number of other life roles. They still did better if they volunteered. There's more studies in here. I've got them in the, in the uh, notes for those who want those. But the point is, our position statement. God built life to operate upon the law of beneficence, the law of love. We've got scripture that says this thing. We've got science that says this thing. We've got experience that says this thing. All the threads are harmonizing on it. So how is this idea of the law of love tied to the gospel, the good news? Well, what did Satan say about God and God's law? What did Satan say about God's law? 
Ah, there you go. Think of it in the Garden of Eden when he says, you shall not surely die. What is he saying about God's law? If, if, somebody, if God said, in the day that you jump, uh, takes Adam and Eve to the top of the Empire State Building, says, in the day you jump, you will surely die. And Lucifer comes by in the form of an eagle, flying by. Did God say you're going to die when you jump? Hey, look at me. I jumped and I'm soaring all over this planet. He knows in the day you jump, you're going to be soaring all over the place too. Uh, you're not going to die. What's he saying about the law? That's not true. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing built into the order of creation that would result in your death if you were to disobey how God built things to run. Oh, sure, God's powerful, and he may lash out against you, and he may choose to terminate you. I, I, can't, I can't predict what such an unpredictable being like he might do, but I can tell you there really isn't anything wrong with you know, you know, going your own way here, other than he might get mad at you. Yeah, I never said God wasn't powerful. I just said you couldn't trust him. You see, the allegation was, was right at the heart of God's law. And what has Christianity taught since? That God is required to kill. That you don't die from breaking the law, you die from the lawgiver imposing death upon you. One of the founders of our church wrote in the Desire of Ages 761, In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God could not be obeyed, and justice was inconsistent from, with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be the God of truth and justice. What is the message here coming from the satanic mind? When you break God's law, God has to kill. God must punish. Now, this is what was suggested in Eden. You won't die. God might kill, but you won't die. What about today? Well, there's a book called The Cross of Christ written by George Knight. I'm going to read to you out of page 20 and 21. See, listen carefully. The dual facts of the necessity of cosmic moral stability and the divinely decreed death penalty for rebellion against the divine government placed God in a predicament because his nature consisted of mercy as well as justice. The same God, Lorraine Botner writes, who is a God of mercy and who in virtue of his justice must punish sinners. For him to fail to punish sin would be for him to remove the penalty against it, to consent to it, or to become partaker in it, and therefore to violate his own nature and to destroy the moral order of the universe. In that context, Satan set off a new barrage of charges against the God who would like to forgive, but was stuck with enforcing the penalty of the broken law. Yeah, so what, what, did, what did Ellen White say about this? Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Satan. Wait, what argument was being argued in this book? That God must yes. punish the sinner. Wow. Do you know this is, this is held as the standard of Christian doctrine in our church, this book? It's Catholic theology, though. And, and they say, otherwise God would not be just. Yes, they say, otherwise God would not be just. So the question now is, let's break it right down to the root. What is the core problem that, 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 that results in this type of thinking? Where, where is the breakdown? Where is the idea that they have exchanged the truth for a lie, and it's out of this particular thought that all this other stuff stems? There you go. She's nailed it. 
that God's law is like a Roman emperor imposed. It's not the natural law of love that life is built upon. It's like a human government imposed upon creation. And if that were true, then do you see, if that were true, God would have to inflict punishment or would be unjust, if that were really the way the law works. So the real issue is having believed a lie about God's law. Well, get this. This is Great Controversy, page 582. In seeking to cast contempt upon the divine statutes, Satan has perverted the doctrines of the Bible, and errors have thus become incorporated into the faith of thousands who profess to believe in Scripture. The last great conflict between truth and error, when is that going to be? When's the last great conflict going to happen? The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle we are now entering, a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fables and tradition. This is powerful. Do you see the demarcation, the cutting line here? And do you see how many good-meaning, well-meaning, good-hearted people have been raised on this, this idea that distorts the divine character? So it's even been predicted. It's been predicted, yes. And there are, there are millions of minds that want to be set free from this. Because if you live under a universe where God is like a Roman emperor imposing laws and then sitting with a gavel and a judge waiting to impose penalties that you haven't see, sought pardon for, what, what kind of a place? Do you have peace there? Here. Do you walk around, you got that recording angel following you everywhere you go to keep a track of everything you're going to do so it'll come up in the courts and just punishments can be meted out? Do you live in peace? Fear. Fear. This is fear, fear, fear. This is what this does. Well, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were? Fear is an infection of sin. Perfect love casts out all fear. So when we teach God concepts that inflame fear in the heart, this is not the truth about God. Perfect truth about God will cast out that fear. We won't be afraid of him anymore. Amen. And I'm going to tell you, our church needs a message like this. Um, and every one of you have opportunities to share this where I will never get an opportunity. There are lots of people in this community who won't talk to me. You guys know that, right? No. <laughs> but they'll talk to you. And they'll try and tell you that you don't think that you just listen to what I say. Ask them questions, yes. Don't you find that there's a, a really big tension between the ideology and the institutionalized religion. In other words, there, there are probably, a, probably just about everybody, given the explanations that we have here this morning, would go along with the ideology. Then they'd say, how do you enforce what's, quote, right and wrong within a, an institutionalized organization. I, I, th- I know where you're going with this, but, uh, and I think there are some people who would fall in that category, but I can tell you, uh, having spent many months in a committee con- conference going over these things in some detail, there are people in leadership that absolutely are, are not, do not agree with this. They do believe God imposes law and that he is the rule giver and he imposes punishments and, and, and he's the only one who can. Yes, in the back. Uh, I have a question from Sherilyn. Did... 
did a Google search on Lorraine Botner, and she is a Calvinist. Why should we take her as an authority as opposed to our own inspired writings from one of the founders of our church? Isn't that interesting? Do y'all know understand what Calvinist means? Yeah, Calvin, John Calvin taught the, uh, the doctrine of predestination that we actually don't have free choice. God has predetermined who is saved and who is lost. This is at least the hyper-Calvinistic form. And there's, there's variations of how far that goes, but basically God's foreknowledge is also predetermination. And so we aren't free to make our own decisions. He's preordained who will be saved and who will be lost. And it doesn't really matter what you do. That's part of Calvinism. But I think our point's well taken. Why do we use these theologians who are coming out of other traditions? Because, you know why? The answer, Cheryl Lynn? But this isn't truth. So why are we doing it? Because Ellen White doesn't necessarily support their side. Because they're searching for materials that promote the ideas that they like. They're also searching for ways to synchronize with mainstream Christianity and or Catholicism. Uh, I, I gave you a book that's not from one of the founders of our church, uh, or recommended it to you several weeks now, um, Derek Flood's book, um, Healing the Gospel, Radical Vision of Grace, Justice, and the Cross. This is what he says on page 8 and then page 12. Love is not in conflict with justice. Love is how justice be- comes about because the New Testament understanding of justice is ultimately not about punishment, but about making things right again. Think this through. This is such, such good stuff. Paul then goes on to explain how God's restorative justice in Christ comes about. God acts in Christ to make us good. A key concept here is justification, which normally refers to legal acquittal, i.e. declaring a person innocent in court, and has often been mistranslated as such in Romans. But it But if that were the case, then Paul's entire argument would fall apart. He is arguing that it was just for God not to punish sinners, as his audience wished. If his only reason was that God had declared these sinners innocent, this would have been seen by his audience as profound injustice, the acquittal of the guilty. God brings about true justice, Paul tells us, by making sinners into saints. This act of redemptive transformation is nothing short of a miracle and happens through relationship, through being loved by God and God's goodness making us good. Paul goes on in, to explain in Romans 7 and 8 that as God's spirit indwells us, as we experience Christ's indwelling love, we are relationally transformed in his likeness. This way, this way of the spirit brings life, Paul says, but the way of the law, the way of retributive justice brings death. And so what he's saying is, if you have a God concept that we're describing here with the law of love being the divine protocols, then God sent Christ to do what was right, to do the right thing, and that is heal us, put us back in harmony with the way life was built to operate, and therefore God doesn't have to condemn anybody because there's no reason to condemn a patient once they're well. But if you have a law construct where where retributive justice, punishment, imposed penalties come, this leads to fear and ultimately leads to death because it alienates you from God, you don't trust him. This is what he's saying. Sunday's lesson. The lesson asks us to differentiate the various types of laws in Scripture. So let's throw them out real quick. There, I could think of at least four types of laws that were described in Scripture. Ceremonial. Okay, and let's, as we throw it out, let's, let's describe its purpose. Ceremonial law, what was its purpose? 
To, to point to Christ. So a teaching tool to act out a drama or a play of the plan of salvation. That's the ceremonial law. Okay, good. Other law. Health laws. Okay, health laws. We can call these natural laws health laws. And what were their purpose? To minimize disease. Very straightforward. Minimize disease. Other laws. There's two, two more. Laws between people. Civil. Civil laws. Okay, laws between people. That's exactly right. And their purpose? Order. Order in society. Okay, and then the fourth law, the moral law. Okay, the moral law, its purpose. Make us right with God. To, to, oh, one, one, one theory is the moral law is to make us right with God. To define sin. To define sin, to diagnose how we're not right with God. And a hedge of protection. And the hedge of protection. So wait now. So those those are the four types of law. We're going to dig into them a little bit deeper. But first, what ways has Satan used the laws that God has actually given to confuse and cause harm? So God has given these laws. We've all agreed He's done it. How has Satan then taken what God has given and caused damage, harm, and confusion with them? What what kind of things have happened because of it? By making people think they're arbitrary laws. Okay, by making people think they're arbitrary laws. And what does that do? It causes us to misconstrue the divine character, to live in fear, and so forth. Excellent. Others? Yes? um, Claiming that we make it look like God's exacting, so that causes rebellion in the heart. Okay, so make it look like God is the one who has to inflict punishment upon us. You know, these laws, you break them, God must punish, again, um, which instills rebellion in the heart. Yes? makes God look like he is not trustworthy. Uh, yes, it makes God look like he's not trustworthy. I think it shifts our attention and our focus. If our eyes are shifted to the page in the law, oh my goodness, I must follow this exactly, then it totally shifts our focus from where it should be, and that is looking upon God. Uh, View him and let him... I, I really like what you said there, because... if fo- Pardon? historical context, those who did not keep the law to the letter suffered substantially from that. Yeah, um, it, 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 law as a remedy. So this is what, what I hear you saying. Focus on the law as a remedy that if I keep it exactly, then I, it'll be okay and I'll be right with God. The Israeli nation didn't keep the law of the Sabbath and look what happened to that. Hmm. We'll come to the Sabbath in a minute because I don't think anything that happened to them had anything to do with the Sabbath. Didn't have a thing to do with the Sabbath. Not a thing. Had a thing to do with how they treated God. Well, okay. How about this one? There's no difference between the types of laws. God said it, therefore we must do it all. All laws are binding. Does that cause confusion? How about this? All law has been done away with, nailed to the cross, including the laws of health, therefore you can eat anything you want. Laws of health nailed to the cross too, so everything's healthy now. Were the laws of health nailed to the cross? When I talk to non-Adventist groups all over, I usually pick up, I usually present this idea how tricky the devil is in, in taking a truth and turning a truth into a harmful lie. And the truth is, ceremonial law was done away with at the cross. And Christians now believe the laws of health were done away with, therefore you can eat anything you want and be healthy. It's not true. It, you can eat anything you want and not be ceremonially unclean. Because there is no ceremonially unclean anymore. But you're still going to have heart disease. And you're going to have, you, you know, if you eat the wrong things, you might get Jakob Kretzfeld disease, a spongiform disease of the brain if you're eating sheep's brain and all this other stuff. Okay. So, you know, you might, you might be in trouble if you eat the wrong stuff. But you won't be ceremonially unclean. 
certain is true. The law is a codification of behaviors which we must adhere to lest we get punished. This idea is a distortion of the law. Um, God's love for us is dependent upon our keeping the law. If we keep it, he loves us. Like this commandment we read earlier, if you, you know, we love him, he'll love us, you know, this kind of thing. Um, God's law is impossible to obey. Therefore, God sent Christ to pay the penalty. And today, if we, uh, today we can't keep the law, so we just need to continue to live in sin and claim his blood as our payment for our sin. Distortion of the law. Um, there's a question in the back, and I want to read this, and then we'll get that question in the back. Um, people who don't keep the law the way we keep the law are not saved. Is that a distortion of the law? Yeah. You know, when I was stationed at Fort Stewart, Georgia, there was, a, uh, there was not a, a, a church within 50 miles of where I was stationed out in the middle of nowhere, Georgia. And on base, though, they had chapels, and they had a small group of, of Seventh-day Adventists that would meet in the chapel, about 20 to 30 people, about 5 to 10 of which were active-duty military. The rest were local civilians who would, who would come and meet on the, on the military chapel. And there were no musicians amongst the small group that would meet. And so there was a radiology technician from the hospital, who was a lovely Baptist lady, who volunteered her time every week to play the piano for us so we could have some song service and special music and so forth. One week, the Bible study portion of our service was on Matthew chapter 5, where, it, it, where Christ assures them he has not come to change the law. Not one jot, not one tittle of the law will be, done, will be changed until all is, is so forth and so on. And the guy teaching the lesson looks to this woman who, after playing the piano, would join us for the Bible study and began to berate her for being a Sabbath breaker. And I, uh, of course, had to intervene. <laughs> And uh, the real question is, uh, who was the true Sabbath breaker? Who was the true commandment breaker? The one who sacrifices themselves to love and support another, using, giving their time to, to help and uplift, or somebody who would berate and criticize and condemn, throw stones. It reminded me very much of the, the good Samaritan who helped the beaten man along the road while the Sabbath keepers walked by on the other side. And so I pointed this out, and I was accused of having a devil. I was. Yes. When you attack others, you broke all the commandments. Yeah. 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 And we'll come to that, because that's up in the lesson, too. Thank you. Yes, in the back. Uh, someone called 6640 accidentally ended up on this site. They said and to thank you, and then they made a comment. If it fits within the character of God... And the timeline of the story of redemption, it serves as an expansion of an explanation to a thread of truth. I think they're referring back to the law. And Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah well said. So, Monday's lesson, the moral law today. When you hear the moral law, what, what, what is being referred to? Was the moral law always in existence? No. The moral law always in existence. Yes. Was the Ten Commandments always in existence? No. Isn't that interesting? That the moral law has always been in existence because it starts and originates where? And God has no beginning or ending, so the moral law has no beginning or ending. It's always in existence. But the Ten Commandments have a beginning. They were not always in existence. Yet, I asked you guys, what does the moral law refer to? And you said the Ten Commandments. But they're clearly not the same. Does anybody question whether the Ten Commandments are always in existence? What evidence? That's a big, bold statement. Is there evidence to support that? 
Moral law always in existence. Let's be clear on that. Moral law always in existence. Ten Commandments is a is a as a expression of the moral law, specifically written for humankind. A prescription. A, a prescription for humankind. Did the angels in heaven need that law to not commit adultery, to honor their mothers and fathers? How about this one? How do we know when the Sabbath begins and when the Sabbath ends? But no, 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 I'm not talking about which day of the week. I'm talking each week, how do you know when it's Sabbath and when the Sabbath is over? Sunset to sunset. So the rotation of this planet in relation to a sun that's always been in existence for eternity. Oh, no. So only since the creation of this planet has that relationship existed. So was there Sabbath before the creation of this planet? Or what, how about, don't take my word for it. Christ said the Sabbath was made for angels. Now, wait a minute. He said Sabbath was made for man. Was there man before this world was created? So the Ten Commandment manifestation, the way the law is expressed in the Ten Commandments, was it always that way? No, the moral law, always in existence. Ten Commandments, Paul says in Galatians, the law was added. Was added. If you're adding it, does it mean it was always there? No, it was added. Now, there's been arguments with some, well, that ceremony was added. The, the ten were always there. Well, um, I'll jump down. This is in First Selective Messages 233. I am asked concerning the law in Galatians. What law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? I answer, both the ceremonial and the moral code of the Ten Commandments. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In the scripture, the Holy Spirit, through the apostle, is speaking especially of the moral law especially of the Ten Commandments, added. So, why was the law added? Why was the Ten Commandments given? Moral law, all in existence. So don't anybody go out of here saying, Jennings is teaching that God didn't have a moral law until, no, moral law always in existence. It had to be there because, we would, because sin couldn't happen unless there was something, unless we were deviating from God's design. Satan rebelled in heaven, deviated from God's design. Yes, in the back. Mike asks, what do you mean by the moral law? Ah, the law of love that we already described earlier about uh, that, it, that it emanates from God's character upon which all universes created to operate. That's the moral law. As described in all the scriptures we referenced, as described in the other theological sources, as, as seen in nature, the moral law, how God built things to run in harmony with his own nature and character. The law of love, the law of beneficence. So the law was added, Romans 5.20 says, the law was added, this is a quote, the law was added so that trespass might increase. You had a hand? I have a question. Sure. To me, the Ten Commandments is a transcript of his character. Yes. And the first uh, four are our obedience to God. Yep. And the rest of them are our obedience to human man. So- true. Everything you said is true. Thank you. So to me, the Ten Commandments, from what I have gleaned, is always there, has always been there, the law of God. That's what I said. The moral law has always been in existence. But the Ten Commandments, written in that form, highlighting those elements, have not always been in existence. God gave those later for a need that surfaced after sin infected humankind. 
But if we're told from the spirit of prophecy that Satan visited other worlds and they didn't sin, so there must have been a rule everywhere all over the universe. Not a rule, a law. Okay, a law. Okay. I agree with that. And the law is? The law of love. The moral law. But we speak so much of the law, the love of the law, not the, no, the love of humankind. But the Ten Commandments puts very succinct that if we do what he says, we do love humankind. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. Again, the Ten Commandments are an expression of the moral law, an expression of the moral law. See, you're safe with me if if I love the Lord with all my heart and all my soul and all my might. I will not do you in. Right. The, the, listen, we're in, we're in agreement here. The Ten Commandments are an expression of the moral law, but that particular expression of the moral law was not given until Sinai. Okay, I'll have to do some research. Oh, well, here, let me give you, let me help you out. Patriarchs and Prophets, page three sixty four. If man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah. And observed by Abraham, there'd have been no need for the ordinance of circumcision. And if the descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant of which circumcision was a sign, they would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary for them to suffer a life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved upon the tables of stone. And had the people practiced the principles of the Ten Commandments, there'd have been no need for the additional directions given to Moses. And then Mount of Blessing 109. But in heaven, service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening of something unthought of. In their ministry, the angels are not as servants, but as sons. There is perfect unity between them and their creator. Obedience to them is no drudgery. So this idea that I'm suggesting, yes, the moral law has always been there. We hear, we hear it in these, in these comments. We know that there couldn't have been sin in Eden if there wasn't disobedience to the law. But the point is, it was not expressed in the form of the Ten Commandments until, the, until Sinai. In stone. In stone. And why was it put in stone? What law was that? Yes, what law was given? It's not codified anywhere. The Ten Commandments are a codification of the law of love. But it's not codified until the Ten, the Ten Commandments. So when did the Sabbath start? Uh, at creation week on earth. Prior to, prior to earth, there was no Sabbath. How did Adam know about the Sabbath? He was instructed. But do you actually, we'll come to the Sabbath in a minute because I think there's a great dis- misunderstanding about the Sabbath. Yes. Um, if anybody wants to turn to Galatians 3, starting in verse 16, this section of scripture, I've understood to be talking about the Ten Commandments. If someone else has another interpretation, let me know. Um, it says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So So the law was added 430 years after Abraham. Just exactly what Ellen White wrote, the law was added at Sinai. Now, but let, but let, let's pull the pieces together. Why? What was its purpose? And this is what I think we understand. God's law, remember, 
expression of his character, our position statement earlier. It doesn't have a beginning point. It doesn't have an ending point. It can't be changed. It's immutable. It's for all, all eternity. No, wait, got to read this first. Let me read this first. Because this is going to make it plain to you. First Timothy 1, 8 through 11. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreaker and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he has entrusted to me. The point is, the law, the Ten Commandments is not given for you. You're talking about the application of it? No, it's giving. We read in Romans 5.20, the law was added so that sin might increase. The point is, the purpose of the written law was to diagnose and expose. This is what Paul said. When I looked at the commandment, then I was convicted of sin. Then I died. Up until then, I thought it was righteous. But the commandment was given so that sin might increase. So I can, not, not actual sin increase. That our awareness of sin might increase. That we could be brought to conviction. That we could see so metaphorically, we could say, the MRI scanner is not built for the healthy, but for the unhealthy, the diseased, the sick, those that are, are in are deviation from the perfect health. The, the Ten Commandments are an, a diagnostic tool expressing the eternal mor, moral law that has always been in existence. Please hear me. Moral law, always in existence. Never has a beginning, never has an ending. The expression of God's character. The Ten Commandment portion was added to bring conviction and expose sin to bring us back to the one who then puts the law where? In the hearts and minds. Yes? Do you think it was added or just more explained in detail? The Ten Commandments were added. The moral law was never added. Okay? Pardon? Yes, go ahead. It's just that, uh, you know, God gave his law to Adam. It was totally understood. And through many centuries, it was verbally cast down. People just understood. Then there was the 400 years of bondage. And God's people totally were washed out because they were taken away and put in paganism. And so God had to bring it back to them. And they could not understand. He had to treat them like children. And he made visual pictures. He was very precise. That's where it came from. It wasn't that it wasn't there. It's just that it was understood totally differently. But not in this form, in my view. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And it's just like I'm making up a little story about why the weeds are there and that they look like the plants to my kids. And then I tell them about Satan. It had to be something descriptive. And let me give you an example, guys. You're, when you Parents in the room, when your kids were in first grade and you packed up their lunch and you sent them off to school each day, did you say to them as they're leaving to go to school and... Remember, you shall not murder anyone at school today. Did you say it to him? Why not? Why didn't you tell him not to murder at school that day? It wasn't in their little... Because it's not in their heart to do it. They don't need that instruction. Okay? It wasn't in the heart of the beings prior to sin. They didn't need this instruction. It was only given when it was needed. But it was always true that the law of love, if you love people, if you love people, do you murder them? If you love people, do you steal from them? If you love people, do you lie about them? No, the law of love has always been in existence. Yes, in the back. Just going along with what the lady said there, um, I remember reading in like Patriarchs and Prophets where it talked about Israelites when they were first taken into um, slavery and some of them kept Sabbath and then died for their faith. But over time, as time went along, those who were faithful, of course, had been killed off. And so the 
the Israelites as slaves were were not keeping Sabbath as a whole Absolutely. anymore. And so this whole thing was just what you've said. It's because, you know, we needed the standard to... Because their minds become very darkened. Yeah. Exactly. Well said. Let, let, me jump to, let me jump to Wednesday's lesson. I wish we had to go into Tuesdays. There's some really interesting things in Tuesdays, particularly about how we obey. And when we be, obey out of a sense of obligation, because the rules say to do it. There's a couple of quotes from, from Ellen White in there. But when the rules say to do it, we be, and I give some examples of, of actual people and relationships. When we, when we do something out of obligation, it instills rebellion in the heart. And you just look at the Pharisees and those who put Christ on the cross, keeping all the rules, and look at kind of hearts they develop. But, but Wednesday's lesson, in the uh, second paragraph, it says, Yet as we, uh, talking about the Sabbath now, yet as we know so well, the whole issue of, of the Christian obligation to the law suddenly gets murky when the question of obedience to the fourth commandment arises, particularly in regard to the seventh day itself. In fact, the irony is that um, the Alabama judge who got himself in trouble for his intense his insistence on placing the Ten Commandment monument in his courtroom was himself living in violation of the law, however, however strict a Sunday keeper he might have been. He wasn't keeping the biblical commandment to the rest of the seventh day. Uh, if we take the Bible for what it says, then, according to James, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. Then the judge was guilty of violating every precept of the law that he insisted upon leaving in his courthouse. Okay, first question that popped into my mind on this was would the people who wrote this in our quarterly tell a woman who's a member of their church who's married whose husband has been stealing from her to get money for gambling drugs and alcohol that because he is violating the commandment of not thou shalt not steal is also violating the commandment of adultery and she has biblical grounds for divorce <laughs> would they what do you bet i'll bet you a hundred bucks of course we don't gamble but <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you the people that said that, no, that doesn't count. You can't do that. What do you bet? <laughs> so, so what do you think? If they can make their argument to condemn a Sabbath break, breaking, then doesn't their argument hold true for adultery? You break in one point, you break it off. They're going to use that here to condemn this judge. You see the point, the problem? So if they, if they wouldn't make that and, and across the board, then what does it reveal about their understanding of law? What does that text mean? What does the text mean? You break in one point, you break it all? It's the point that the codification was an expression of love. And if you, if you steal from somebody, you're not loving them. If you murder, you're not loving them. If you commit adultery, you're not loving them. If you, if you break love, you're not loving in any form or fashion because the law isn't about this ten code. The law is... Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we give our life for each other. Uh, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. The law of love being reproduced in the heart means I would rather die than hurt you or take advantage of you. In no matter what format it might come up, I will always be seeking your best good, your eternal best good, not what you necessarily want. That's why a parent can, in love, discipline a child. And God disciplines those he loves because he wants to do what's best for us, not what we want in the moment. Redemptive discipline. Yes, exactly right. And so that's what the law means. So if you're breaking the, the rule, and this is what, what, what the Pharisees had serious problems with because they took the ten as a code of behavior. And they thought they could keep these and break that and still be in harmony with the law. They always had their excuses. I wanted to talk about the, the, the keeping of the Sabbath commandment and how Christ kept it. 
Remember, they accused him of being a Sabbath breaker. For what? What did he do They accused him of being a Sabbath breaker? He healed on the Sabbath. Only emergency, life-threatening conditions, right? Man was paralyzed 38 years. He heals him on the Sabbath. Hey, this is routine stuff. Come back on Monday. We're closed for the weekend. <laughs> Why is he healing routine 38-year-old illness on Sabbath? To make what point? That the Sabbath is not about avoiding work. God's love is not limited to That the Sabbath is not... He said, he said it's with me. My father is always working. Those are his words. And so am I. But it's not about self-aggrandizement and self-promotion, working to get ahead, working to make money for self. It's not about that. We put that aside. But it is about using our energies to bless others. We should put energy into loving other people on Sabbath. Amen. Rather than ignoring them till Monday, right? Yes? No? Absolutely. Yes, and this is what he was saying. Love, love, love. Sabbath is about love. And so true Sabbath keeping is not about what you avoid doing on Sabbath. It's about what you actually do on Sabbath. True Sabbath keeping is not about a, a avoiding a list of behaviors. It's about practicing Christ-like living, presenting truth in love, leaving people free, the law written upon the heart. Whereas that beast system in the end, no one can buy or sell, say him who has the mark of the beast. Notice the method. Sabbath keepers, truth, love, freedom. Beast markers, coercive pressure. Do it my way or else. And if you, we, we got a hold of government and we pass law that unless you close your business on Saturday from Friday sunset to Sunday sunset, Friday sunset to Saturday sunset, unless you do it, you can neither buy or sell, your business must, must be put out of business. Because we're going to keep the Bible Sabbath. Are we now Sabbath keepers or Mark of the Beast people? That's the beast. Mm. Isn't that profound? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love, a God of truth, a God of freedom, that you have gone to infinite lengths to reach us in our darkened state, that your kingdom is not a kingdom where you compel people, where you coerce people, your kingdom is a, keep, a kingdom where you love people and you win us with truth and win us with love in an atmosphere of freedom. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough to actually give us a law, to, to write it down, to show us because we would have never figured it out and to show us what's wrong in our hearts. And we thank you that you sent Christ to put the law of love, the design protocol of life back into the species human that Christ is the connecting link that connects humanity back to your divinity. We pray now that the Holy Spirit we dispatch to fill our hearts with all that Christ has achieved, to reproduce in us your love, your perfection, that we may be partakers of your divine nature and live a life of truth, love, and freedom. We pray in your holy name. Amen.